You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. great to see you all here and you braved the snow and now we're going to go into God's word we're going to look in 2nd Samuel chapter 11 that's page 270 in the church bible and if this is your first time here welcome my name is Benjamin I'm one of the pastors and we love to if you, you don't own a bible to give you a bible so take that one in the seat in front of you so last week we saw David at his very best I think uh when he showed great kindness to Jonathan's son, didn't take revenge, didn't lash out. Unfortunately, this week we're going to see David at his very worst. So let's read the first five verses. We're going to talk through the rest of it uh, throughout this message, but let's just read the first five verses to set the stage. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Amalekites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to her, And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I am pregnant. Oh Lord, there's one thing we all need to walk away from. This message today, it's that none of us are beyond being tempted into sin. I certainly know I am not beyond it. I certainly have seen the dozens and dozens of pastors who once walked with you and then at some point in their life walked away from you and got into all sorts of evil. So God, I humbly come before you saying, I don't want that to be my life, so help me. And help everyone here to see that they are not beyond it. Maybe it isn't sexual uh, like this, but... None of them are beyond going into sin and being absorbed by it and consumed by it. So let us humbly come before you, Lord. See where we are weak so that we can walk strongly in your Holy Spirit and not fall into sin as David does. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the scene we see playing out before us, uh, David is no longer the young man. He's no longer uh, the, the warrior slaying Goliath. He's no longer the, the general leading the armies of Saul. He's, he's no longer the, the 30-something cave dweller. He's no longer the 40-something king. He's now 50, 52 years old, uh, scholars would say. 
up until this point, his life has been on a constant rise, an upward trajectory of faithfulness, of power, of strength, of integrity. He has just been going up like a rocket until this point. And here we see the pinnacle and the drop. This is no longer after this. The time that we saw last sermon uh, years ago when he showed such great kindness to Jonathan's son. He's now headed down a slippery slope. Have you ever seen the movie, uh, the first service, a lot of them didn't know it, but maybe you did. It was called Romancing the Stone. It was back in the 80s. That was a long time ago, but I remember it. Uh, <coughs> and as these two, they're on this adventure in the jungle of South America, and they're trying to find this giant uh, ruby, I believe. And they're, they're, they're searching, they're following a treasure map, and, and they, they're stepping along, and then they step in, uh, and then all of a sudden, you see, whoosh, their feet go out from under them, the next one steps in, and whoosh, and they head down this mud slide. And as, it, uh, as they go further down, it gains uh, more altitude and speed, and so they're just gushing through, they can't stop, and then bam, they just fall into this big pile of mud. And that's the image I came up with when I read this over and, and thought about where David heads. He's, he's walking on solid ground. Life is going well. And then he steps into a trap and he plunges down. And where we'll find him next week is in a pit. And you know, we see this happen. People start out well. God blesses them. And then it goes to their head. There was another king uh, later on down the road. His name was uh, King Uzziah. He's like a lesser David. He's one of the few good kings um, of Judah. And uh, he rose up and and then he got prideful. And, And this is what 2 Chronicles chapter 26 verses 15 to 16 say about him. Uh, So his fame spread even to the distant places. For he was wondrously helped until he became strong. But when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and he let it go to his own, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithful against the Lord his God. This could be said about the life of David as well. And the consequences of this decision, or these number of decisions, are going to cause him pain for the rest of his life. And if you're young, and uh, you're at the start of your life, and we would encourage you, us who have uh, made disasters of our lives, us who have been led into sin and have felt the consequences of that, we would tell you, don't fall for the trap. Don't think that you can get away with what God says is wrong. Because not only is it extremely painful for yourself to live with the consequences of your sin, of your younger days, but it is even more painful to watch your sin affect the people that you love. I can say that. Watching them pay for your sins is one of the worst experiences you can ever do. And David would say the same if we could talk to him now. So here is David's dirty laundry, hung out for us to see. And you know, in its tragedy, it should encourage us that the Bible is real that it is God's preserved word to us humans. Because if I wrote this book, if humans wrote this book, we'd probably erase this part, wouldn't we? We would create a book uh, where characters who followed God were flawless, where they didn't do things like this. 
I've read uh, many of the other religious writings. I've read the Quran through. And, and in those books, it paints perfect characters. Characters who are not flawed like us, who follow God with 100% obedience. And even if they do things that we might say are wrong, it's all good. But not the Bible. God preserved this for us to see, for us to learn from. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, now these things, meaning the things that happened in the past, things of the Old Testament, happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, hear him, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And David was a man. Each of us will be tempted. That is a given. You better expect it. You better prepare yourself for it. It's coming. Maybe you're riding high right now, but at some point in your life, you are going to be facing down a massive temptation. But the temptation is not the sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. And if you think you can't be tempted, ladies and gentlemen, you're deceiving yourself. Because each person is tempted. It's different for each person. Some it's sexual immorality, some it's greed, some it's gossip, some it's hate, some it's pride, but we are all tempted to sin. But it is when we indulge in that sin, when we see the temptation, we embrace it and we make it our own, that's when we start heading down the slippery slope. And if you don't stop, you end up in the pit. And so how did David get to this point? Was he just walking along, you know, just casual and all of a sudden this happened? Or did he start to uh, get lazy in his spiritual life? Did he start to let the enemy in? Did he start to give ground to the enemy? Well, yes, he did. In closer study of David's life, we can see that he had set himself up for this. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, it says this about David. This is a decade back. Uh, when David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, after he arrived in Hebron, David took more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now I've heard people say, uh, to try and justify their lives, um, their decisions, to, to have uh, affairs or, or to have multiple partners or to just have one-nighters that, hey, look, people in the Bible did it. They had multiple partners. They had flings, and, and they're fine with it or God's fine with it. And I think that's one of the weakest excuses or arguments that you can ever present because that's not what the Bible presents. Let me give you three reasons why the Bible does not support Multiple partners. Number one, it goes against the natural created order. God in creation in Genesis and Jesus, the son of God, later when he came to earth, both said a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is God's desire that one singular man be with one woman doesn't always happen perfectly where the first person you're with is the person you stay with. That's God's desire, but it certainly isn't to have multiple. That's not his created order, and we see that throughout Scripture. Number two, God had already warned David and the people 
You've got to go back to when Moses was leading the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 17. This is the warning to Israel before they go into the promised land. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. And you will appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers, for you do not set a foreigner over you or someone who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you, you will never go back to that way again. And you must not acquire many wives for yourself so that his heart won't be led astray. He will not acquire large amounts of silver and gold for himself. That's the warning. Don't let the stuff of the world, the way other people are living, the pagans influence the way you live or you will be led astray. So that's the second reason. First reason, it's against God's natural order. Second, God clearly warned them not to. And third, anywhere in the Bible where we see polygamy or multiple partners or affairs, or uh, it never goes well, ever. Didn't go well for Abraham, remember that mess. It didn't go well for Jacob, remember all the infighting. It doesn't go well for David. It goes horribly wrong for Solomon. It never goes well. Stay away from it. We can just see from the, the chart, look at all of David's wives up to this point. He's got more than enough wives. One wife is enough for any man. He's got way too many to keep track of. Plus, he's got a bunch of concubines. He's having children all over the place, and as we're going to see in two weeks, he can't properly parent these children, and they just go wild. So what we see is David has created in his life an unquenchable, deceived, sinful sexual appetite. He has to have new women all the time and plenty of it when God has told him one woman. He'll never be satisfied now with the woman, the wife of his youth, as the Bible tells him to be. He needs more and more and more. And that's the thing with sin. Once you start it, you dabble in it. Trust me, as a man whose life was almost destroyed completely by sin, once you start in it, you always need more and more and more to satisfy you, to get that initial satisfaction that you had before. It always calls for more. Maybe it's buying stuff. Maybe that's what you're hooked on, spending money. And you know that you get that, you click that thing or you buy that thing and it's so great at the start and then it loses its, its flavor and then you need another thing and, and you go into debt and then you go into greater debt and then all of a sudden you, you find yourself, you can't pay your mortgage payment and you've got $20,000 of credit card of your debt and you're like, how did I get this and what do I have to show for it? This is such a miserable life. Or maybe it's alcohol and drugs. And the thing with alcohol and drugs, I know this from being an alcoholic, is your tolerance, you need more and more and more to get the same numbing effect that you used to get. Maybe it's eating disorders. Uh, you need less food to feel good about yourself or, or you need more food to cope with life. Maybe it's exercise, cleanliness. It can be anything. And these things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're bad outside of God's context for them. They're good in God's desired context for them. That's what God created these things for, sex and food and money. They all are good things when you use them properly. But when you use them improperly, they become evil. So that's how he got to where he is. So he's really weak. He's created in his life this, this uh, desire that shouldn't be there. And then we read in verse 1, In the spring when kings march out for war, David sent Joab and his officers 
and all of Israel. In Ecclesiastes, it tells us that there's a time for everything. Uh, there is a time for the harvest in the fall. There's a time for rest in the winter for kings. And in the summer or in the spring, that's when they would go out to war. And if you had read chapter 10, uh, before this, you would have seen that they were in a big war with the Amalekites. And God gave them victory. And then the winter comes, and you can't fight a sustainable win- uh, war in the winter, and so they come back to Jerusalem. And then the Amalekites uh, start again with them, and so they go back to war with them in the spring. And now I was studying this, trying to understand, was this David's responsibility to be at every uh, war beca- or every battle because he was the king? And historians tell us that the king wasn't required, nor could he manage a kingdom if he was at every battle. But there was battles that they would expect the king would be at, especially a man like David. Significant battles or large battles, battles with arch enemies like the Amalekites, um, or at the start of the season. Because the men are uh, rusty and they're not really into it and, and it's the first battle of the year, the king would often go out and encourage them and inspire them. And up until this point, that had been David's, um, that had been his life. He'd always led from the front, but he doesn't now. And so why, I was asking myself, and so reading what the commentators would say, why did he stop going out? Why did he change his habits? Well, there's a few uh, reasons they say. It could be because he grew arrogant. I don't need to do that anymore. I'm the king. and I've built this kingdom up pretty successfully, and I've won a lot of battles. I don't need to do that anymore. I'm beyond that. They say it could be because he had grown bored. Ah, I just don't want to do it anymore. I'm better than that, it's boring. I just want to sit around here and chill. I got this beautiful palace. It's so nice. Or third, he got soft, which makes sense, right? We, we've known lots of men or women who have been uh, strong and they, and they did amazing things. And then, you know, the prosperity and the comfort and the position and they just got soft over the years. You see that as a nation. We were once a great nation, but now we've gotten soft. And he's been sitting on soft pillows all winter. And maybe he's not the man he once was. And he's no longer surrounded by all his friends, his companions, the guys who walked with him through the hard, challenging times of his life. They're all off to war. And he's left there with all these temptations. So what time is it when he goes out to this uh, veranda or balcony well historians would say it's not dark it's not the night it's the evening it's the early evening they say and the sun in the middle east sets around seven ish uh, so they assess that it's probably seven between seven and nine o'clock and david for some reason's in bed i feel myself getting tired but i don't go to bed necessarily at six or seven o'clock at night maybe that's down the road for me Uh, maybe it is for some of you and that's great but david at 50 probably shouldn't be in bed by six or seven, but he can't sleep because he's not doing anything with his life because he's lost his job and his purpose. He's not busy anymore, and when a man is not busy doing something productive, men get into trouble. And so he wanders around his uh, balcony, and it's not dark enough that he can't see, and he looks down, and he sees something, and not just something, it's a woman bathing. Not just any woman, it's a beautiful woman, the Bible tells us. And the Bible doesn't say a beautiful woman often. It's, it's something that the writers save for, a, I guess you could call, extra specially beautiful woman. Esther was one of those women. The Bible says was beautiful. Rebecca from Genesis was another one of those women. 
And so is this woman described as beautiful woman. And so there is restless, uh, bored, arrogant David with this unquenchable sexual appetite from new and, and different women. He sees her bathing. Now, is this 100% his fault? I used to think so. Before this, I would read this and say, David, this was all you. But uh, really examining this and really reading and studying it, uh, I came to, be re- uh, to remember some things or be reminded of some things that I knew from living in the Middle East for a couple of years. And it's this, women don't bathe outside in the Middle East. Women cover their skin. Modesty is, is a huge part of the Middle Eastern culture. It was then and it still is today. Women in the Middle East, I never saw a woman bathe. I never saw any more of a woman uh, in the Middle East than her hands and her eyes. Women would get water from the well and they would go inside and they would bathe themselves from the water inside. Never would they go outside. This would not be allowed. This would be against feminine culture of the day. And if she was caught, she'd be liable to be punished or taken advantage of or maybe even killed. So the question is why is Bathsheba out bathing at dusk in front of, because her uh, house, she's one of, her husband is one of the mighty men of God. He's a commander of men. Her house would be near the king's palace. Why is she out when her husband is away? Knowing that the king is not away at a time when she knows he might be walking around. Is she trying to get attention? Does she know that David is restless? That he likes women? Has she seen him and maybe had the hots for him? Maybe Uriah hasn't been giving her the attention she wanted? Let me ask you. Imagine you live next store and and (coughs) you worked with Let's, let's pretend you're a male, and, and you worked with uh, the guy next door. And, and the guy next door, he has to go on away on a business trip, and, and you're supposed to go away on the business trip. You always do go away on the business trip with him. Uh, but you decide you're not going to go. And his wife is very beautiful, and they own a pool. And, and she's not one that would typically go out um, and uh, skinny dip, but she decides on a night when she knows you're going to be uh, in your bedroom probably about now. It's just about a time of night that uh, you can still see because it's light, and she knows that uh, through your bedroom, sees right down into her pool, and she decides you just see her one night come out, and she, uh, out of character, not something people would typically do in that neighborhood, strips down naked and starts to skinny dip. Might you ask yourself, is she trying to get my attention? Is she possibly purposely doing this? We don't know, but it certainly is not characteristic of what a lady would do, and it's dangerous. In Romans 14, verses 12 to 13, Paul warns us. He says, so then each of you should give an account of yourselves to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling blocks or obstacles in the way of a brother or sister. That's his warning. To the best of your ability, don't be the cause of someone falling in to sin. So ladies, I'm going to tell you straight out, you have to understand, men are attracted to the female body. Period. Fact. 
end of story. They always have been, and they always will be. That is the way they were made. And there's a $97 billion a year pornography business that would attest to that. So we can walk around as 21st century Canadian women and say, I should be able to walk around in my bikini and men shouldn't stare at me. They're just pigs. Well, I'm sorry, but they're going to. And so God calls us, men and women, not to present something that might make them stumble because God made women beautiful. That's a great thing. God made men hairy and sweaty, not beautiful. But to women, women are beautiful. And that's the way God designed them. When he made Eve and, and he had, Adam was there in the garden, he made all the animals and, and his job was to name the animals. And then he made Eve and God brought Eve to uh, Adam. He was maybe naming the horses at the time. And so that's a horse and that's a cow. And no, these are ugly. And, and no, whoa, who's this God? He didn't just stop and say, oh, what another, another animal. No, no, it got his attention. And the Bible says that uh, they were both naked and not ashamed. It was good. And we know what happened after that. And this is good for a man. This is what men, this is why God made men or women not look like men. So that a man would be drawn to a woman, he would commit himself to her, he would settle with her, raise a family with her, be committed to her, and they would have normal, frequent sexual relations. So it's God's desire. Paul reminds us again in 1 Corinthians 7. Pick it up in verse 2. And I understand there's children here, and so I'll be tactful. But because sexual immorality is, immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have them with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty with his wife, and likewise a wife with her husband. A wife does not have a right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have a right over his own body, but a wife does. Do not deprive each other except for an agreed-upon time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then when you come together again, then you will come together again. Like otherwise, Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul in this statement is building a story. He's saying it's better that you all be single like me because I don't really have these temptations and I can commit myself fully to the Lord. But if he says if you're not like me, which most of us aren't like him, then instead of burning with lust and being out of control like so many men are nowadays, find a wife, commit to her, and come together regularly. This is God's desire. It's good. And so, men. We'll find ourselves, most likely, commonly, the men have more appetite than the wives do, especially when the wives are stuck with kids all day. Right? It's, it's, it's natural. It's normal. And women need a different sort of intimacy more often than men do. They need emotional intimacy and emotional security. They need to know that you're there for them, you'll listen to them, you'll be patient with them, as Peter reminds us to be patient with them, that we'll protect them, we'll be provide them security, that we will show them they are the most important person in our life. They need that just as much as men need sexual intimacy. And so, men, 
If you have come to the place in your life where you're like, I'm too busy, or I'm not interested, or, or my wife doesn't deserve it, or, or things are just so busy in my life, I don't feel like giving my wife emotional intimacy and making, building a secure life for her. I just don't have the time. I want to just check out and sit on the TV and watch TV. Well, men, I would say to you, according to the Bible, as you are supposed to serve and sacrifice for your wives, you're in sin. You're in not in a good place. That is not God's desire for you as a husband. And in the same way, I, ladies, I would say to you, if, if you've come to the point in your life where you're just too busy, just not appealing to you anymore, you just, you just don't care anymore, and you're leaving your husband out there to be tempted by all the various things that he'll be tempted to do, you too, finding yourself in a sin. It's not God's desire for your marriage in both ways. Both of us have a key part to play in sacrificing and serving our spouses. Both are important. And there is a real temptation for us then to look for these things that our spouse is not giving us in other people's spouses. Everyone will be tempted in that way in different ways. You will be. Your spouse will be. And therefore, God says, invest yourself fully into your spouse and don't allow that yourself to be a stumbling block so that they go looking elsewhere. David hadn't done this. He had not prepared himself. He was not ready for what was coming. Job was ready. Job tells us in chapter 31, verse one, I have made a covenant with my eyes how when that I will not look upon a young woman. David wasn't ready and now he is going to get it. He sees her. Notice the wording. He saw her, he sent for her, and he slept with her. He's not prepared. His imagination is going wild because he's created in his life uh, this ability for sin, and it's taken over, and the sin is raging inside of him like a wild beast. And James tells us each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Your temptation might not be sexual immorality. It might be gossip. It might be um, money, it might be addictions, it, it might be laziness. Whatever it is, each one of you and I will be tempted in our own little way, away from God, into sin. And we've got to be on the ball, we've got to be watching and ready, or we will be taken down. So notice he inquires of her, about her. He sends somebody to see who this woman is. The report comes back. Isn't this Bathsheba? Daughter of Iliam and wife of Uriah the Hitchite. If you've been reading, doing your Bible reading plan, reading through the Bible, you see that most of the time when people are introduced in the Bible, uh, in those days, they introduce themselves, Hi, I am Benjamin, son of Stephen. Here we say, I would say, Hi, I'm Benjamin. I have a middle name, Andrew Emery. That's how I'd introduce myself. Not there. You'll see that in the Bible. But for some reason, we can know the reason. It's a warning. The guy who brings back the report doesn't just say who her father was. He says who her husband is, which is not the way people would uh, introduce themselves. David, yeah, I, I inquired of who that person is. Uh, that's Bathsheba. Daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah, your friend, the commander of your military, the guy who was with you in the caves, that guy, Uriah, the Hitchite, David. 
And that should have been enough for David. He should have clued in at that. He should have come out of his haze. But he was so immersed in this sin that he couldn't even see it. He knew the laws of God. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet another man's wife. He knew this better than we knew this. And yet it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. More and more and more he needed. And we see this. Pastors are horribly, have a horrible reputation for it. They walk with God and then at some point in their life they think they're above sin. I deserve this. I've earned this. God understands my pressure. No, we're not above this. We're all accountable to God's word. How many times I've sat with people and they can be immersed in some sort of sin uh, and they'll say to me, when, when they're sitting across from me and their life's in a disaster, I don't know how I got to this place. It's like somebody lifted my eyes out of the haze. I don't know how I came to this place. I was doing so well a couple of years ago and now I'm in this place and I don't know how I got here. That's the deception of sin. We, we get in a little bit and then all of a sudden, down the road, it's taken us over. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the famous German theologian, uh, wrote this in his book, The Temptation. In our body, there is slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce with irresistible power. Desire seizes mastery of our flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flash burns into flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power, or greed of money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses reality, and our only desire is that very real sin. Maybe you can picture yourself, I know I can, with anger, which has always been something I struggle with. I'll be loving Jesus and walking in faithfulness to him, and then bam, some, somebody says something or my kids are rub me the wrong way or my wife and bam, I'm into sin, I'm into anger. It's like this thing that it was this little smoldering fire. I wasn't dealing with it. I wasn't praying about it. And boom, now it's burning inside of me. So is the temptation to sin for any of us. And so he sent for her and she came and whether that was under pressure or by choice, we'll never know. But that a one night fling and she goes home, and David thinks, I'm away. I've gotten away with it, scot-free. He must have not read what his son would later write, write Proverbs chapter 3, verse 17. No one who lacks sense, or to the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten secretly is tasty. But he doesn't know that the departed spirits are there and that her guests are from in the depths of hell. We always think we can get away with it, but we never do. Eventually, God brings it out, and weeks go by, and then he gets the news. I'm pregnant, and he's busted. And so he has two choices at this moment. We all have two choices when we're busted, when we're caught in sin. Choice number one, we admit it, and we take the licks, the consequences. Uh, we come clean, and we receive God's grace when we repent, and we receive forgiveness. It doesn't mean there's any consequences, immediate consequences that we feel. But when we do that, we stem the flow of the blood. By that, I mean we cauterize the wound. There's no more damage being done. There's damage there, but it isn't fresh damage. 
That's the Christian option. That's the best option. That's the one we want to if we're taking a long-term view at life. Some immediate pain for long-term success. That is not the approach that David takes. He is only thinking about the immediate. How am I going to save my reputation? How am I going to save my position? So he takes option two. He goes all in. What I mean by all in is before I became a respectable pastor, when I was still in the army, I used to play a lot of poker. Texas Hold'em. And in Texas Hold'em, if you got good cards, you can go all in. Chips, you go all in. <coughs> and I was joking, I'm not a respectable pastor, but. Because um, I still uh, sometimes want to play poker, but I don't. <coughs> so you go all in. And so if your cards stink, you can bluff. You can uh, make everyone think that you've got better cards than you actually do. And so you say, I'm all in. And then you try and hope that they'll all back out. And essentially, when we Christians try to think that we're smarter than God, we're essentially going all in. God, I know what you said, but I'm going to cover up my sin with more sin. I'm going to bluff you out, God. God says, no, you're not. Because I can see everything. And I know everything about you. God knows our secret thoughts, even the things that we don't see. I have to keep track of that. I, I can't just not do things out here in the real world. I, I need to stop what's going on in here. And this is where the struggle is. If we're, not, if we're honest with each other, right? This is where the battle is. And I constantly have to be going, no, I'm not going down that road. No, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to focus on that. We have to be like Joseph and flee from that immorality. Say, no, no, I can't do this to my Lord, my God. And so he concocts this plan because he's going all in. His only mission now is to get Uriah to lay with his wife. So verse six, David sends orders to Joab and send Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends for Uriah, to sends Uriah to David and Uriah came to him and David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. He's making small talk, really, like he's really interested in, right? He's just, all the time he's thinking, okay, how's it going? Oh, great, great, wonderful. Sorry to hear that he got killed. Uh, are we winning? Yeah, great, wonderful. Uh, by the way, he says, um, go down to your house and wash your feet. You might say, well, why wash your feet? Again, this is Middle Eastern culture. M people wore sandals. Your feet are filthy. And if you're coming home to get comfortable and stay for a while, you come in and wash the filth off your feet. It's kind of like in our days. We come home, we take our shoes off so we don't trample in the garbage from outside, inside. And we hang up our jacket, we put on our slippers. David says, yeah, that's great. By the way, war is awesome. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, just go home and get comfortable. Relax. You've been away for a while. Get comfortable. Let your wife take care of you. Wash your feet. And then, look at this, Uriah, so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. So Uriah's walking out the palace doors, uh, he's, he's headed down the, the marble steps, and he's on his way to his house, because it's not that far, because we know he can see the house uh, from the palace, and a guy shows up, a servant, oh, this is from the king. This is odd. I never really picked this out before I really studied this. A gift from the king. He was just there. He could have given it to him. But David is so desperate. He's trying to find any little way to get Uriah to lay with his wife. So here's a, uh, I imagine it's a gift basket. And he opens it up and a bottle of wine. Smelly candle. Essential oils. Cologne. What is going on? 
He calls me a commander away from the battle. He could have sent any messenger to report on there. And he tells me to go home and wash my feet. And now he sends me a gift. This is where I start to wonder, because verse 9 says, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master servants. He did not go down to his house. This is where I start to wonder, did he know something was up? (laughs) Did he start to smell? Wait a second here. This isn't making sense. I know David. I know him well. I've known him for decades. Something starts to stink. Maybe something starts... He was thinking something's going on, and so he doesn't go down to his house. Verse 10, when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, the Israel, and the Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camped out in an open field. How can I enter the house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited Uriah to eat with him and drink with him, and David got him drunk. Then he went out in the evening to lie down on the cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. David's just descending deeper. He's lying. Now he's getting people drunk, which the Bible is very clear not to do, to take advantage of them. Let's picture this. Uriah comes back. David says, go home, be with your wife. Uriah says, I'm not going. Uh, So then he calls him back. He says, go home, be with your wife. I'm not going. He gets him drunk. Still, he won't do it. So now we see David descending in to desperation. And when we get ourselves into a place where we're covering up sin with more lies and more lies and more lies, eventually our whole life becomes a lie. It's a whole web of lies, and we get desperate. And you know the rest of the story. He sends a letter. He gives a letter to Uriah. It's sealed with, the, uh, with his uh, stamp so nobody can read it. He delivers it to Joab. Uh, Joab reads it and it says, send Uriah uh, to the worst part of the wall and when they're under the fiercest attack, pull your guys back. And Joab's like, hey, Joab, I gotta be going, what is going on here? This is David's friend. This is one of his mighty men. This is the guy that lived with us in the hardest of times. What is going on here? But Joab was not a man of integrity. And that's a lesson to us. We only want people around us speaking into our lives that are men and women of integrity. Because Joab should have kiboshed this. Not gonna happen. But because we know he's a shrewd, or he's an evil man, he lets it happen. And so then he sends back a message to David. Uriah's dead. Wink, wink. David sends back, oh, it's okay, you did your best, wink, wink. And it wouldn't have been hard for when Joab got back to figure out what went on when he sees Bathsheba a couple months pregnant. But let us conclude on verse 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning ended, David David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. A few points we can walk away from. One, never think we're beyond the temptation of sin. I am not, you are not. So guard yourself. And if you think you're on, you're above sin, you're on dangerous ground. Number two, know your weaknesses. Know where you are tempted. 
and build up guardrails and be accountable. Really be cognizant of that. Number three, if you're in sin, sin, come clean. It's hard. It is hard, to be honest. It's hard to, to be one of the few people that will be honest, but God will bless you for it. David could have kept a lot of the destruction that's gonna happen in his life, but he wouldn't. Don't be like him. Come clean. Maybe not to the person that you've hurt right away. Go to somebody. Men go to another man. Women go to another woman. Confess, repent, seek wisdom on how to proceed. And then just remember that last sentence, that the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. The whole chapter, we don't see David mention God at all. It's like David had forgotten who he was, the God he had followed. Don't forget God is always watching. And he can, wants to bless us, but because he cares for us, he won't allow us to get away with sin. God, I come before these men and women freely saying that I am tempted to sin and that I have sinned and that I fight temptations so that they will know that they don't have to feel like they're alone. You know because you were tempted in every way yet were without sin. You are perfect. We are not. Help us, Lord. Give us strength, desire to fight against sin, Lord. I pray to any who are in here um, who think they are above getting into uh, sin, that they would be humbled, that they would let their pride down. I pray for any in here who are in sin and they're caught and they don't know how to get out of it and their life is a bunch of lies, Lord. I pray that they would uh, confess, that they would find somebody trustworthy and repent and receive wisdom and forgiveness as you promised to give to us. I pray for any who have been hurt Maybe there are people in here who have been hurt by other people's sin. God, would they um, forgive? Would you help them to uh, release that uh, anger that they have, um, the hurt that has been done to them, to you, to give the same grace uh, that uh, you have given them uh, to that other person? It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean there aren't uh, ramifications. But God, help us to forgive. And Lord, help us to just finish our lives well. I don't want my life to end like David's. I don't want to curse my family any more than I already have with my younger days. And I don't think any men or women here want to. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you need prayer, <coughs> I'll be up here and I would love to come and pray for you. Doesn't mean that you're into something if you just need prayer. I come up. I hope to see you members tonight at the annual members meeting. God bless and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.